Hey everybody, the bookening just around the river bend. That's a little Pocahontas reference for you. Movie from my childhood that I want to say no one liked. But Not me. Not a fan. Sure did watch it because we sort of thought we were supposed to. Yeah, well, Disney ha- hadn't proved that they could fail yet. Yeah, they had a monopoly on success at the time. It was coming off The Lion King, I think, which is like the biggest thing ever. Yeah, which came off of... Beauty and the Beast, which came off of The Little Mermaid. And let's not forget about our pal Aladdin, Aladdin in there. Aladdin in there, yeah, that's right. Yep. It was always one step ahead of the bread line. Or the Hitman? Once. <laughs> if there's a Hitman, <laughs> someone put a hit one on Aladdin. Step ahead of the... Hey, me and Jake are here to give you a little update on our progress <laughs> or <laughs> lack thereof. So if you remember earlier this week, the mysterious Phantom came to the studio, kidnapped Jake and Brandon's wives and kids. The idea was that we had to get our support up to $500 a month. If we did that, then we would release these wonderful Harry Potter episodes that we've been banking for our 100th, which is what we were hoping to. If we did not do that, our wives and kids would be shot. So it's a little dark even for the mysterious <laughs> Phantom. But. And we'd have to do the, the President is Missing by Bill Clinton and James Patterson By Bill instead. Clinton and James L. Patterson. So so as soon as that episode released, that little, that little announcement, announcement was we were like twenty dollars within range. We it thought it was more like eleven dollars away. We can meet the Phantoms challenge. Not a big deal, and we instantly dropped by like sixty bucks or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Our support went down <laughs> dramatically. So we're thinking there could be several reasons for this. Number one, you guys hate our wives and kids and uh, want us to be miserable for the maybe rest they of our just, lives. Maybe they just, you know what? I don't even have wives and kids. Maybe they want to sink you and Brand into my level that wouldn't be good <laughs> thanks <laughs> uh, that would be the worst <laughs> reason number two jake they hate harry potter maybe they and just everything hate harry, harry potter. potter stands for don't want us to do harry potter you know even I, though it is the most requested thing we've ever had we were going to give some dignity to the reasons that christians hate harry potter that's one of the things that we talked about in these now potentially lost episodes and then the third reason is maybe they just really really want to hear us talk about the president's missing the president is missing yeah they were really excited about that james patterson bill clinton book. and william jefferson clinton we are actually about to no joke go record an episode on the president is missing and i sure hope that you pick up the slack we do also have wonderful meaty delicious fulfilling episodes banked on harry potter but we cannot release those episodes until we get up to $500. All you have to do, patreon.com forward slash the bookening, patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the bookening. Go there, pledge. Any amount will help. You can get $50 a month and join the exclusive club of fans who not only get a donor shout out every week, but get a t-shirt once a year with a favorite bookening quote on it and get the book that we're reading each month. That's right. That's Personalized. Right. So go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. And now on with the show about what, uh, by the way, I should say these episodes, the way we record these, I don't think it's any secret at this point. The way we record these episodes can be a little bit out of order in these next couple of big sleep episodes. You might hear us teasing like, what book are we going to do? That's because we recorded them before we recorded the announcement with the mysterious phantom. If your brain can't handle that, then you're just going to have to deal with it. I'm sorry. I think all our listeners can handle it, man. They're Yay. smart enough to listen to us. They're smart enough to get it. Yeah, it's a time It's a time paradox. It's like Looper or 12 Monkeys or Back to the Future or whatever your terrible time travel movie of choice is. Prisoner of Azkaban. Prisoner of Azkaban. Yes, a book that I have many thoughts about. Not my favorite Harry Potter book, but I will save those thoughts until we have $500. Thanks for listening, everybody. On with the show. 
Coming up next, you'll be wide awake through the big sleep. talking about one of my favorite authors today. Spoiler alert. Raymond Chandler is a master. That's what the New York Times says. I'll tell you what the New Yorker says. They says Chandler. Chandler wrote as if pain hurt and life mattered. That's in this little section at the front of my book called Acclaim for Raymond Chandler. Ross MacDonald, another great mystery writer, said Chandler wrote like a slumming angel and invested the sun-blinded streets of Los Angeles with a romantic presence. Isn't that nice? We're going to see whether Jake and Brandon agree or if their brains are wrong. It's exciting. I'm excited. A lot of nostalgia. One of my favorite books. Just going to say that right off the bat. Or one of my favorite authors. Uh, one of my f- uh, growing up was Mr. Raymond Chandler. I, of course, Nathan Howerson, your humble and obedient host. Let me introduce you to our team of fine literary connoisseurs. There's Brandon. There he is. There he is. I have a shirt that I've often worn. And Brandon? (laughs) Yeah. You know who you are? Who? The baller who's a scholar of reading. How you doing today? I am doing fantastically. Are you ready to talk about the greatest author of all time? Yes. I'm not going to make the joke again. I'm ready. Let's do it. You make the joke. It's, they, they haven't heard the joke. It's they haven't heard the joke? Yeah, oh. I don't think it was on mic. Oh. Are we talking about Tolstoy, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <No>. man. <laughs> I cracked myself up. Yeah. We should introduce the other fella. Let's do it. Why don't you do it as if uh-huh. you're narrating a detective novel? Okay. I'll do some saxophone music You'll for you. You'll do some saxophone music? Okay. It was about 9.40 in the evening. The a sultry... A sultry, hot May evening. This is really distracting. (laughs) (laughs) He sat over in his chair, slumped back, sipping his non-existent whiskey, (laughs) smoking his non-existent cigarette. We need a hard-boiled simile to bring it home, man. Like, you got to do that for us, Nathan. This is all you, buddy. I don't know. Bring it home. He was lanky, like Jack Skellington. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, that works. Whatever. Hey, Jake, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? What's wrong with your voice? Nothing's wrong. I always talk like this. <laughs> you always talk like this. You always talk like this. It's all the cigar smoke that's always around here. Yep, yep. We yeah, do smoke and, cigars, just like all great Christian podcasts. Yeah, drinks whiskey. What are you smoking today, Nathan? <laughs> Straight from the bottle. <laughs> no, seriously, what are you talking like that for, Jake? The people are used to you talking like this. <laughs> Is that right? No, you're talking like this. That's how you sound. like an alligator. Hey, guys. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> yeah. Hi, guys. <laughs> Oh, I just got It's that flashbacks. time of year, man. Allergy season, man. Allergy season. Mm-hmm. Claritin. I understand. I use Claritin daily. Claritin. Yeah, uh, so do I. Imagine yeah. how much worse you'd sound without Claritin. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Let's imagine it. Bring, bling, bling. Hey, Jake. I understand you haven't been using Claritin. Uh... uh, uh. <laughs> bring, bring. Wow, that was, a, that was a great imagination. Yeah. And that's my impression. Now I've done I've done an impression of two terrible instruments now. I did a, uh, what do you call that thing? Saxophone. The saxophone a and a harp. So um, <laughs> two of them. I thought that was a phone ringing. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Hey, guys, let's talk about this book. What do you say? The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Do it. What's that sound? Oh, no. It's the Texas Texan 
it's textable guns going off. Yeah. <laughs> is that what this is called now? Yeah. It's the contextual Texan. Okay. Uh, about to let out a hearty inhale. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. <laughs> That's nah. right. Now, Brandon, why, 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 why are you saying yeehaw? Because I'm from Texas. And? We say yeehaw. And you're about to deliver some oh, yeah, context for get, this work. And I'm so excited. But could there be a twist today? There might be a little bit of a twist. I hope there's a twist. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> no, there's a twist. Okay. Brendan, Brendan was kind enough to let me help. That, that's a twist, right? Yeah. So I'll start with biography, mm-hmm. give a little background to the book, mm-hmm. and then you're going to take it from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page here. <laughs> that's right. But Raymond Chandler, one of my favorite authors, Brendan was kind enough to let me horn in on his segment here. So Brendan, but you take it away though. I only ask that you wear my hat with dignity and that you don't shoot the six shooters at Jake. I've already done that. Yep. We know how that works out. It ends with him going on an undercover mission to beat <laughs> Mark Twain. <laughs> Mark Twain's corpse over the head with Jane Austen's shinbone, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to experimental early bookening, folks. It's fun. Yeah. All right, Brandon, take it away. Some context here for Mr. Raymond Chandler. So here we go. So he was born mm. in Chicago mm. in 1888, mm-hmm. which puts him squarely in the time of a lot of writers that we've read recently. C.S. Lewis. John Steinbeck, we haven't read him recently, but writers that we have read in the context of the bookening. Sure. And so, born in Chicago, just right up the road here from Bloomington. By the age of eight, his father, though, had and his mother had separated, and his mother moved with him to England, where he would attend um, Dulwich College, which apparently is one of London's best public schools. Basically, he went and he was in a private school like C.S. Lewis, Dulwich College, and his mother and his father split, and so this would, from a lot of what I've read, I've read some articles and stuff on him. I found this one by this guy who interviewed him way back in the 50s and then wrote a, his reminiscence of it for the New York Times in 73, mm-hmm. so it was a pretty good article. His name was Julian Simmons, and he starts out by talking about the two movies. You have apparently one by um famous actor. Altman had a movie. Yes, Altman had... What is the name of that? Oh, it's The Long Goodbye. Yeah, yeah The Long Goodbye, which apparently wasn't very good. It's, it's kind of a revisionist or it's almost anti-Chandler. It, it turns the story on its head in a way that a lot of film critics actually liked at the time, but I, being a Chandler fan, don't. Yeah, so, so he had made a lot of changes to it, and then this critic is responding. I think actually this article was written in response to that movie. Oh, good. He didn't like these changes, and he goes back and he says, okay, so what was Chandler? What Who was Chandler? And what sort of books did he write? And mm-hmm. so I found this a very helpful article. So who Chandler was? He lived with his mother. He never saw his father again after they divorced. And so this would over kind of be a shadow over his life. In fact, when he finally got married to this woman that he nicknamed Sissy, she was almost 20 years older than him. Um, A lot of people read back into that as he had a mother complex. He always wanted to marry his mother, all these sorts of psychological things into his life. But he seemed to... Having read his entire oeuvre, it's hard not to because the woman that Marlowe's usually interested in is going to be the older lady like Mrs. Regan is in this and not so much the... There's usually a young strumpet kind of a character or damsel in distress that'll be like Carmen kind of is in this story. Mm-hmm. But that's never the one that Marlowe would give the time of day to. It's always a slightly more sophisticated woman of the world. And so that colored his life and apparently it colors his books too. There's not a whole lot that's known about his first 45 years of life, largely because he was ruined basically by the depression. He, We know that he 
um, was fairly successful in school. He wrote a couple of poems that are apparently not all that great, but showed that he was interested in writing at the time. He went and he fought in the war, came back, and by his own account, he tried to do some, like, what is it, peat farming of some sort, mm-hmm. like the fruit farming, and got to know people, networked, and finally he became like the CEO of some oil companies and had some oil interests, but then the Great Depression happened, and, and then at 45, he decided to give writing a shot. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't remember the name of the first magazine that he tried to write in, but he would send stories out to these hard-boiled magazines. Basically, Black Mask would have been the, the Black major Mask. One, that's yeah. the one. Yep. So he sent out these stories to the Black Mask, things like that, and slowly began to get a name for himself. But it was in '39, I think, is when he wrote this one. What he would do is, as he would write these stories, he would then what he called cannibalize his stories. And so he would sew and stitch together stories he had already written in order to get a novel out of them. Yeah. And kind of form and reshape them. And my understanding is that's what The Big Sleep is. It's a reformation of some of his early stories. Absolutely. And you can totally tell because there's the story of the pornographer that takes up the first chunk of the book. And then there's a different story, kind of Eddie Mars stuff. And it's it's stitched together fairly well, I think. But it's, I think it fits together. But yeah, but you can still tell that they're two different stories. That it's Yeah. 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 You wouldn't plot this out no <laughs> nobody's nobody's gonna sit down and come up with come this. up with this, the, this. The, i thought it was pretty the plot was pretty bizarre mm-hmm. how yeah. It un- yeah it's kind of a herky-jerky yeah. a little bit um, yeah it, it it worked together just fine but it was like where, was very, where, where on earth did he feel like that was the inevitable way to yeah yeah no and so that makes sense of it yeah and so that's he would also as he got into the rhythm of writing and became a fairly prominent writer two things i wanted to point out one he thought that a writer should write four hours a day. Mm-hmm. Often he wouldn't get that. He would just end up reading or something. But he thought that a writer who was going to be a writer should take his craft seriously, kind of like a Shiguro, just mm-hmm. set aside time and just do the craft and write. So he was a craftsman. He really worked hard. And also something that he said um, that I appreciated was he thought that any writer who didn't care for the sound of words mm-hmm. wasn't a writer. He did care about what he was writing and the way that he was writing. Is so much that this book, The Big Sleep, has appeared on many top 100 lists of the last century. Mm-hmm. So I know the New York Times put it on their list. Pretty sure that, um, oh, the British version of The Guardian, I think they put it on their list as well of the top 100 novels of the last century. Right. And so this is, he's, he's, prom- he's looked at as a prominent figure in letters, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I had never read him. I always kind of looked at him as, um, until I got to know you better and knew that he was one of your favorites. I always thought he was like a hack, basically. Mm-hmm. No offense. No, yeah, yeah. a lot of people do. Because, I think he's been reassessed well, within the last couple decades. And it's no, not because anybody had ever told me he was a hack. Mm-hmm. It's because I knew that he was the guy who wrote the movies that Humphrey Bogart was in. Yeah. And I really like Humphrey Bogart, but I never would have thought that the books that those movies were based on were great books. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. And so... He's the originator of a bunch of cliched... yeah. Mm-hmm. I imagine that he must be cliche himself. Yeah. I, mean, I was surprised to find out that's not the case. He actually cared <laughs> about writing. He's actually a respected author. Mm-hmm. So as his writing career begins in the 40s, and it lasts from 40 until he died, roughly, what, in 58? Something like that, yeah. He became a, pr- a very prominent man in America. His novels were very famous. I don't think he was ever, like, celebrity famous, but he became kind of a public figure. He was known as a curmudgeon. This guy says that he met him later in life. He was a little bit soft and almost effeminate as well. And that's where he starts running down rabbit trails with his mother obsession. But he was a very private man. Kind of reminded me of E.B. White. We don't know a whole lot about him. 
Well, this said, he began drinking heavily, and though he adored his wife, he could not resist having affairs with the younger women in his office. Maybe that was early in his career, later on, because the guy was noting it as strange that he was praising this woman who was 60 or 70 Mm -hmm. and saying that he was devoted to her. But he he had this phrase where he said, a lot of men are tempted by younger women, but I just adore my wife. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a lie. Maybe there's proof that he didn't. But it definitely is something this guy pointed out about him. Well, I've read his letters and he did adore his wife, whether he... And this said that too. It said that when Sissy became chronically ill, he devoted himself to nursing her until she passed away in 1954. Yeah. Quote, for 30 years, 10 months, and two days, he later wrote, she was the light of my life, end quote. Her death so devastated him that he responded with alcoholic excesses and a suicide attempt. Yep, that's right. And so that's what I was going to say is he, the last years of his life were very unhappy after her death. Mm-hmm. Five years later, he died alone. Yeah. And so as soon as, after she died, his writing wasn't as prolific. Um, he also had, he was famous for or coming to loggerheads with producers in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a uh, he had one quote where he said something like, "You know, producers will take your work, and whether you like it or not, it corrupts your work because mm-hmm. they are offering an interpretation of your book, and people are going to look at your book in light of that thing that's now exists with it, right? And so, I mean, you can see that, that he's definitely right. And with the murder on the Orient Express, it is colored by Kenneth Branagh's interpretation of it. Yep. So. I found him interesting. There's, like I said, there's not a whole lot that we know about him. He was kind of a celebrity to the extent that E.B. White was a celebrity, uh, but he's early enough that we don't have a whole lot of like footage of him and things like that. Yeah. But, but there are stories of him being an eccentric guy. This is my understanding. Mm-hmm. He was an eccentric, he could be argumentative, grumpy, trying to basically probably trying to cast himself like Marlowe. Yeah. Marlo's well, there's a little of what we talked to. I think I mentioned him when we, talk, we were talking about Ishiguro because he has a little bit of that standing outside of the culture sort of thing where. He's very British. I have heard, I have seen at least one interview with him. I forget whether it was televised or just a voice recording, but he has a very formal, effete sort of British mannerisms mm-hmm. and accent, but it's kind of American. And I think people always expected him to be this tough Marlowe Marlo kind of a guy, guy, and he was never yeah. going to live up to it. Um, you can actually find an inter- him, there's an interview, I, I just remembered, it's him talking to Ian Fleming. So it's kind of interesting. Mm, and what it, what it sounds like is these two bogus British stereotypes Posers, talking yeah. each talking to each other. So it's not like what you'd want is for it to be like Marlowe talking to James Bond, but instead it's just like, well, you know, that's interesting. So I would not have expected that either. Yeah. And that's what this guy was pointing out is that he met him later in life and he thought maybe it was just because he was older. But like I said, he said he was very effeminate, very mm-hmm. kind of delicate and small. Yeah, in a this, way that you wouldn't expect. This thing said that he was basically friendless. Yeah, seventeen people attended his funeral. That's strange. Yeah, and so that's the kind of man he was, and um, um, the kind of novel he write. He, so Marlowe, he wanted him to be this kind of iconic good mm-hmm. man, and he thought that if you were going to have a detective story, that the detective should. So this is kind of shifting more into the theme. The way that it fits with so, some of the detective stuff we've talked about. The, his detective should be someone who had like the instinct that was, and his instinct was usually right. And his instinct was also good. Mm-hmm. Like his instinct was to be good, basically. He does, I think it's important as we look at this novel to understand that he sees Marlowe as an ethical good man. Absolutely, yeah. And he is as good as a man can possibly be mm-hmm. in this sort of weird noir world that he's created. And also, it was interesting, I didn't realize that at first one of his options was to call Marlowe Mallory <laughs> after Thomas Mallory, uh, the guy who wrote Lamort D'Arthur. That's fascinating. Hmm. And because he's, he really liked that, the, he liked the Arthurian legends, 
and a lot of those overtones get wrapped into these. What? He wanted an Arthur. Yeah, a lot of these things get wrapped into this book. Yeah, so at the very beginning of this book, he sees the the tapestry or whatever at the old man's house. It's the maiden with her, the convenient hair. And the knight. And the knight that's... So he was very obsessed by that chivalrous idea and how the chivalrous Mm -hmm. idea can't really be in this world Mm -hmm. and what it would be like for someone who has those sort of knightly instincts or the Arthurian instincts, how they would try and live in this world. And so, and then, so you said, like, you, often the women who are noble are the more Guinevere types, mm. the noble fallen woman versus the strumpet who just wants to throw herself into bed. Yeah. And they're always the ones that are punished. And that's very Arthurian in its sh- outlook on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there's, absolutely. There's actually a novel later in his career called The Long Goodbye, maybe the best uh, Marlowe novel. In that one, it all becomes a little bit more explicit. And his assistant wrote him a letter saying, I think Marlowe's too Christ-like in this book. He sacked her by return of post and never rehired her. So he was a little fussy. About he was sensitive it. about this, <laughs> this <laughs> issue. I mean, he believed in, he believed in Philip Marlowe. If nobody else did. No, you can tell he believes in Philip Marlowe too. Yeah. And so yeah. like by the time you get to that last chapter where he's pulling uh, Poirot, letting him go. Mm-hmm. So, but better. Yeah. So you hear that, Danny? You listen in? This is what a detective novel should be like. No mystery that makes any kind of sense at all. <laughs> Just <laughs> nope. a bunch of random scenes of people saying wisecracks to each other. And then Marlowe following his nose into trouble. Mm-hmm. Yep. Being sort of the, the lone good guy out there. Yep. Well, I don't have a lot of patience for Poirot, and um, I don't think Chandler had any real patience. He wrote a famous essay called The Simple Art of Murder, where he just detailed the British school of, of mystery writing, and he talked about how cheesy and obvious everything in the line of Doyle. Yeah, yeah, everything. He said Doyle was a genius, but he said at the end of the day, Sherlock Holmes is a couple great lines of dialogue and an attitude. He said it would be very hard for someone not to write a better story than Doyle did now, building on his success. Not disrespecting him, but kind of like we would say it would be hard for a modern filmmaker not to make a better movie than Star Wars A New Hope, maybe because it's just like... it's He kind broke of, the ground. He and... broke the ground, but now it, you're not going to have, be able to have worse special, you know... You know. Right. Still, anyway, Brennan, I'm sorry I interrupted. I was ready to hand it off to Any you. Any hack can, with a computer can have better special effects than Lucas had. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, those um, were the basic things. I mean, if people want to know kind of the background and history of the detective novel, they can go back and listen to... We talked about it with the Christie episode. Yeah, with uh, the... <clears throat> I, mean, I can give a quick just... rundown just sure, yeah. quickly. Mm-hmm. So the detective novel kind of has its roots in the gothic tradition where mm-hmm. you have the mystery, the strange things that are happening, the darkness, and um, horror also comes out of that genre. But you also get this obsession with death and murder and then some good person with intellect and observational skills being able to come and piece the world back together. So it's the chaos of death, the chaos of murder, the chaos of evil, and all that this brings. And that's what you get with those really early gothicals and what we'll see with Frankenstein. Sure. And then you get the later Enlightenment response to it being, well, there can be people like Sherlock Holmes or one of the earliest instances of it is Bucket and Bleak House, which mm-hmm. we will be reading later yes, this year. indeed we will. I think actually one of the first detectives. Mm-hmm. So it'll be fun to see what Jake thinks. <laughs> Jake's going to like it. I mean, Dickens has everything Jake's likes. It's yeah. sentimental. It's uh, yeah. terribly, terribly written. written. It's, yeah. no, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's got a great plot. I mean, Dickens is a master of plot. He's a master. So then we have the, so, and we talked about this, the eccentric detective who comes in. He's often a loner. 
He's higher than everyone else, smarter than everyone else, higher in intellect than everyone mm-hmm. else, not like higher. Yeah, well, in Sherlock Holmes' case. <laughs> yeah, well, he was actually with opium. Mm-hmm. And they come in and they bring order, and that's what they represent. They bring order and the ability to make sense of the world in the chaos around us. Mm-hmm. Marlowe's an interesting take on this because he doesn't necessarily bring, he tries to bring order, but it seems whether or not he can is another story. Right. He can't. Yeah. <laughs> that's the... Yeah. So with like Sherlock Holmes, they can bring order. Mm-hmm. With Bucket, he definitely tries to. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I think Dickens has some more wisdom than Conan Doyle, actually, mm-hmm. with what ends up happen- with happening with Bucket. But it's not, when you get to the 20s, you kind of get this, and then the 30s and 40s, and you'll talk about this, yes, is how this detective that. begins to change. Mm-hmm. And so, but those are the early manifestations of it. That's kind of where it came out of, just as a quick refresher as to where the detective had his roots and where he was born and nurtured mm-hmm. was in was those early, in, yeah. In the womb of... The, in the womb of the world trying to make sense of murder mm-hmm. and depravity. Yep. And having someone come in who has enough natural logic and observational acu- acuity to come mm-hmm. in and put it back together. Yep. Basically, it was their hunger for a pastor, right? Someone who could come in and try to figure out what was wrong and what had gone wrong. Yep. But still be progressive enough not to be Christian. Yep. So kind of like there you, go. you come in and you set the world of the bookening to order with by giving your amazing context, using your keen acuity to make sense of the various literary thingamabobbers. That's right. And now you get to do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what happens. Um, throw, the, throw this... Six shooters over to you. All right. Yay. Catch. Bang, bang. Oh, no, Nathan. <laughs> you shot me. <laughs> Did I shoot you? Yeah, I'll be over I'm here. I'm so sorry. Stuff, stuff is cotton in my wounds. I will heal you with my bookening host powers. Oh, I'm better. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about our lovely donors. We're going to have to come up with a hard-boiled simile for all these people. Oh, I knew you were making us going to make us do this. Well, Brandon, it's what the people want. Is it what they want? <laughs> I don't know. Don't really care. Jake, give us a hard-boiled simile for Professor X. He was as uh, crossed up as Robert Johnson at, at a railroad track at noon. At noon? Well, yeah, because oh. he'd be even more crossed up there than he would be at with the devil at midnight. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. And the little one on the way, right? Mm-hmm. Were more hard-boiled than... An Easter egg boiled for a minute longer than eight minutes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nathan, not me. He was as cool and debonair as... The one he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brandon. Yeah. Benny T and Dana T were as in love as... Two hobos fighting over their last drop of whiskey. <laughs> oh, no. Poor Benny and Dana T. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Jay and Katie were as cold as... And loved cheese as much as... <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> They were as cold as an Eskimo who had forgotten his long underwear. And they loved cheese as much as... A mouse stranded on the Arctic tundra. Whoa. Whoa. There you go. That's a, that is a mouse that loves his cheese. And is also cold. <laughs> Loving cheese. Maya! Maya! Was? Maya was. Maya was. That's yeah. not a hard-boiled metaphor. <laughs> she just got murdered, in which case Maya was would be kind of a yeah, cool yeah. sentence. No Maya's name falls more. like the sound of a nuclear bomb. A nuclear, if I may, a nuclear bomb on the tundra. Whoa. On a mouse. It's cold. Blowing up that mouse. Wanting cheese. Mm-hmm. And my beloved mother, Beth, was as awesome as... Me. As awesome as Jake. Nice. Wow. Congratulations, awesome. Mom. <laughs> 
David's Mighty Men uh-huh. transport was as transporting as was as transporting as David's Mighty Men trucking. Oh, is it trans- as transporting as themselves? Uh, John and Jill were as in love as. Is it my turn again? Oh no, sorry. We're John and Jill. Two vultures fighting over a <laughs> carcass under the hot Arizona sun. Brendan. <laughs> How's your relationship with your wife? <laughs> Is everything going all right? <laughs> Let's come back to that. Uh, Jake, Jake. Is this Ro- what love is like? <laughs> it's like, I'm just describing love. Uh, Robert and Rhonda, Jake, were as in love as... Two geese returning home after winter. Here we go. Jenny Z, Brandon, was ex- as inscrutable as... Oh, and Jenny Z was inscrutable as the cold, heartless stare of a woman. <laughs> <laughs> the cold, melting ice at the bottom of an empty whiskey glass. On the tundra. On the tundra. <laughs> With the mouse. With the mouse. And the nuclear bomb. Falling on you. Andrew and Esther were Jake as happy as... And little baby Timothy. As happy as that Arctic mouse when he found a roll of cheese. Right before the bomb hit him. <laughs> well, he didn't know. <laughs> the uh, lily of the valley was as sad as... Was as sad as a hobo wrapped in his blanket under an overpass with his fire on Christmas Eve. Okay, so still pretty sad. <laughs> still pretty sad. <laughs> but not quite as sad as him fighting the other hobo. The last uh, drop of whiskey. <laughs> hey, we got uh, Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley... They were as awesome as me. As awesome as Jake. <laughs> Brandon, Jake. Yo. Yes. I want to talk about magazines. Let's do it. Before the Civil War, magazines were a lot more like what we think of. This is all going to tie in because you have in order in order to understand pulp detective stuff like what who who Chandler wrote. You have to understand the magazine industry. So magazines before the Civil War, they're more like newspapers. They're local. They're associated with cities. You're not going to have big national magazines that are reaching everybody like a magazine today. Uh, even Dickens. I was I was reading up on this. Brandon will probably talk about more about this when we get to Bleak House, but even Dickens' reach in America, as popular as he was, and he was popular, the reach... The stories are always people lining up on the docks. Yeah, yeah, people lining up on the docks. But even given that, those stories <coughs> wouldn't have had a circulation anything like even the most boring magazine would have now. We're talking subscribers in the thousands. We're talking, for example, Graham's Magazine, which was edited by Edgar Allan Poe, and published James Fenmore Cooper. It was based in Philadelphia. It had a few thousand subscribers. That's what it was. That's what a magazine was before the Civil War. Around the Civil War, that's when mass market fiction caught fire. It was the dime novel that caught on in the late 19th century. And we actually talked a little bit, if anybody wants to go to one of our least popular episodes of Sound of Sanity, which was on uh, The Searchers, we talked a little bit about this there because it was the Western stories that actually... um, Oh, that's my train of thought. It was Pop- the Western stories that popularized that popularized that propagated yeah. the dime novel, and these were novels that you would literally pay a dime for, and they were about the mythology of the American West or American Wet, as I wrote in my notes here. Um, <laughs> Frontier. <laughs> American wet. <laughs> yeah. Frontier. Yeah, frontier stories. All the stuff that would, would in the 20th century become all the cowboy movies and those cliches and everything were already popular in or the, the 18th. movies. What's that? Or the space movies. Or the space movies. Yeah, the movies that we have today. We just saw Solo and reviewed it not too long ago for 
sound of sanity, the self-same sound of sanity, exact same thing, all the cliches that were already in place before the 20th century in the 19th century with these little cheap dime novels. Over in England, you have what's called the Penny Dreadful, which were all these nasty potboilery gothic stories like uh, Sweeney Todd and Varney the Vampire, and you pay a real cheap price and it's mass produced. And this was the first mass produced fiction that was really available in the history of the world. One thing that began to be popular at that time in those Western stories was serialized heroes. So the idea of, I don't know who they would have been. They, they became in the 20th century people like Hopalong Cassidy and, oh, what are some of those other guys? Um, Wyatt Earp. Wyatt, well, Wyatt Earp was an actual historical figure, though. Yeah, Although but, there would have been plenty of novels about him, too. But Well, the one that might actually, it's not a real one, mm-hmm. but that kind of captures that pretty perfectly would be Woody from the Toy Story series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's if just, you've seen Toy Story 2. Yeah, 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 where you see the yeah. old uh, stories that people watch, you yeah. know, the old TV show that Woody used to be on or yeah. whatever. Those stories were based in the serialized dime novels of the 19th century, which would have followed the same guy. Let's call him Jake Menzel. He's Jake Menzel, the white hat wearing cowboy hero. And you, there's some potboiler author is just churning out novels Lone about... Lone Ranger. Yeah, I have Lone Ranger, exactly. There you go. I don't know why I couldn't pull a name. But this became the... This would morph in the 20th century into the pulp magazines. And we have that to thank a guy named Frank Andrew Muncy, who founded a magazine named Argosy in 1896. And it was 192 pages of adventure fiction, which was printed on cheap pulp paper. And it cost 20 cents instead of the 25 cents that a real magazine, like what would it have been then? The Strand? Would that have been a magazine then? Something like um, that. The early versions of the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things really become those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had, by this time, flashy magazines with large circulation. But this guy, basically through, because he was a genius that, a little bit like George Lucas was the genius that took the old boring uh, space opera stories, put them through the technology of new special effects. Same deal here. This guy wasn't a creative genius, but he took all the old stories and he put them through the technology of cheap pulp paper and was able to, through this technical innovation, print these magazines really cheap. And that's why they're called pulp is because they were literally made from, you know, cheap pulp paper. And the other innovation that this guy has at the turn of the 20th century is that he's going to go from a subscription base, which was how all magazines were done. People would subscribe to them. They'd get thousands of subscribers to an impulse buy base. So he's going to have in the grocery store. Yeah, it's going to be sitting in the grocery store. We see it to this day. It's going to be uh, the most direct National Enquirer. Yeah, National Enquirer, Cosmo, Mo, Mo, whatever it is you see in the grocery. It's we have this guy to thank for that model of Team I'm gonna, Vogue. I'm gonna yeah Vogue. I'm gonna have this cheap thing. It's going to often have a titillating cover or some eye catching headline or something that's gonna make you want to just throw it into your groceries or wherever you're buying down at the newsstand. You're just gonna grab it. Um, that's how magazines obviously are sold to this day. So this guy begins that everybody rushes. All these pulp magazines come on the market, become really popular by the 1920s and 1930s. I think we did talk about this a little bit, maybe in our detective. I don't remember what episodes, but if you listen to every single bookening episode ever, which you should, you'll hear us talk about this. A gentleman whose name is... When we did, oh, it was when we did Bradbury, because we talked about science fiction stories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what it was. You're right. You're yeah. right. So the man that we have to, to thank for inventing the hard-boiled detective genre is a man actually named Carol John Daly. 
who was a terrible writer. He wrote about a character named Race Williams, who was a hard-boiled detective like Marlowe. And he actually invented a lot of the tropes that we think of when we think of the detective in the office. I'll read you a little bit from one of the original stories that helped popularize the genre. Race Williams, quote, Race Williams, private investigator. That's what the gilt letters spell across the door of my office. It don't mean nothing, but the police have been looking me over so much lately that I really need a place to receive them. You see, I don't want them coming to my home. Not that I'm over particular, but a fellow must draw the line somewheres. So I think that should immediately give you some appreciation for Chandler because he's obviously not doing what this guy's doing, which is to just write. This guy's like the equivalent of a modern blogger or something. He's just writing in a really direct. It's not necessarily bad. It's just there's no there's no artfulness to it. He's just writing in a modern vernacular. Ernest <coughs> Klein. What's that? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And if I mean I could I won't bore you. Ever we found a whipping boy. I yeah, know. poor guy. <laughs> poor Ernest Klein. I don't know if there's someone him. who deserved it. <laughs> so anyway, Race Williams takes down the Klan in this short story. It's kind of fun. He takes down the Ku Klux Klan. That's nice. A little progressive of Mr. Daly. But but he actually invented this genre and, and basically took crime out of the countryside and into the city because crime stories were traditionally in the Agatha Christie mold of, you know, mansions, houses, one step removed from the reality of everyday life. Holmes has a famous line about... Does he? What is it? It's so famous that it's just right there on the tip of my tongue, obviously. It's about how horrifying crime is in the in the country where it can be hidden and covered up as opposed right. to... Yeah, see, yeah. They're on a train somewhere. I do remember that vaguely. I'll, I'll look it up for you. I shall wait. So they're on a train, they're in the rolling countryside, and mm-hmm. Watson says something. Watson says, are they not fresh and beautiful? I cried with all the enthusiasm of a man fresh from the fogs of Baker Street. So he's escaping. Right. Holmes shook his head gravely. Do you know, Watson, said he, that is one of the curses of a mind with a turn like mine that I must look at everything with reference to my own special subject. You look at all these scattered houses and you're impressed by their beauty. I look at them and the only thought which comes to me is the feeling of their isolation and of the impunity with which crime may be committed there. Good heavens, I cried. Who would associate crime with these dear old homesteads? They always fill me with a certain horror. It is my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. <laughs> you horrify me. <laughs> Good but old the re- Watson. Oh, he's going to keep going. <laughs> but the <laughs> you horrify me. <laughs> you horrify me. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason is very obvious: the pressure of public opinion can do in the town what the law cannot accomplish. There is no lane so vile that the scream of a tortured child or the thud of a drunkard's blow does not beget sympathy and indignation among the neighbors. And then the whole machinery of justice is ever so close that a word of complaint can set it going. And there's but a step between the crime and the dock. But look at these lonely houses, each in its own fields, filled for the most part with poor ignorant folk who know little of the law. Think of the deeds of hellish cruelty, the hidden wickedness which may go on year in, year out in such places, and none the wiser. (laughs) He's right, too. Was that? That's all that was. Faulkner built his career on that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain rightness about it for sure. Well, <laughs> sure. And so it reminds me of one of my yeah, fa- go. We'll go. Reminds me of one of my favorite metaphors he had here where they were walk- he was walking and he saw the house up on the ridges mm-hmm. and he said all their lights were on like witches' houses. Yeah, you yeah. yeah. That? That's a nice one. Yeah. Yeah. Chandler, by the way, I will just say right now as preparation, he would later make fun of this novel because he said, I went so heavy on the similes back then. Like, man, give give people 
actual break. You don't have to have a simile in every paragraph. Um, so I think Chandler's obviously a master of similes, but he himself, and maybe I agree, said this, this, this novel was a little heavy. And later on, they would be a little bit better integrated into the story, or there just wouldn't be, you know, everything wasn't compared to something in the later ones. Anyway, I guess the point with all the with all the Sherlock Holmes stuff is Conan Doyle makes that really compelling. Agatha Christie makes that really compelling. The idea of the manor house, everything that Jake just read, everybody rips that off. It, it's, it spawns a genre of these novels about manor houses and crimes and thin-lipped butlers and all this kind of stuff. That's what people take to be a detective story. And then somebody needs to update it you know that goes on for a couple decades and then somebody has the bright idea let's actually that that's not resonant anymore that's not how people live anymore let's bring this into the city let's make this real let's make this relatable for people and that's what the pulp magazines did is suddenly it wasn't a step removed from us it wasn't in the past it wasn't in a reality that's not relatable to us it wasn't among the elite among the rich it was who we are you know it was just i mean you could argue i guess that marlowe is still in a what would you say an exaggerated world of of rich people and of poor low lives and of all this stuff chandler himself would say there's a strong element of parody in my work there's no place in california that's really you know la isn't like the way i portray it in the novel but it still helps to have been there yeah well, at least I mean, it helped me to imagine where we were yeah i mean he evokes it and anyway, maybe it's a little bit like the marvel movies you know you have all this superhero pageantry and then somebody has the bright idea to have get robert downey jr to just talk like a normal 21st century guy and it's really really refreshing and everybody likes it and they build a whole franchise out of it that's a little bit like what the pulp magazines did. You have all the pageantry that's associated with the detective story. And then suddenly we're going to do all the same tropes that people love, but we're going to make them relatable and modern and more violent and more real and more immediate. So that's what we have to thank this gentleman, Carol John Daly, for. And uh, out of the the guy that really perfected it was a guy named Dashiell Hammett. He wrote The Maltese Falcon. He wrote The Thin Man. He wrote any number of novels. Red Harvest is the other one. He had a character, a series character called The Continental Op that would solve a mysteries and then sam spade of course in the maltese falcon which was, became a really famous movie with humphrey bogart he gertrude stein actually credited him with inventing the american declarative sentence that's what uh. she said not hemingway this guy hammett she gave him full credit with inventing the way that modernism writes and a lot of people that's that's been a large part of the critical reassessment of raymond chandler is that he actually was a lot of people will say a lot more influential than someone that was more highbrow more literary some of the more literary people that were writing because everybody actually read and enjoyed raymond chandler whereas some of the highbrow stuff that the critics and scholars liked in the 20th century nobody was actually reading so you can find a lot of ancestors of chandler that are writing today so anyway, did this Dashiell Hammett invents it? He was actually a Pinkerton detective, so he was basically just writing about what he knew, making it really immediate. He invented Sam Spade. That's the novel that famously Maltese Falcon ends with Spade coldly turns in the girl to the police who's betrayed him and doesn't seem to care. And it's really, you know, it was really considered really provocative at the time. And kind of this was a new kind of anti-hero for people. And then Chandler comes along and Chandler's this failed oil oil man. I think some of his failure from reading his letters was his alcoholism, which is something we should talk about. Chandler was a major alcoholic hmm. and you definitely can see it all through his books. Marlowe's definitely an alcoholic. Everybody in this book, in all of his books, is always drinking. And I think Chandler really did drink like that, apparently. And there are stories like he had to finish a script when he was working in Hollywood. And he said, I can't do this because I'm sober. 
And they said, well, we need the script. And Chandler said, okay, give me, buy me so many bottles of bourbon and give me three days. There's actually a director that tells a story and he tells it as if Chandler is heroically sacrificing himself because he's trying not to drink, but he's going to go ahead and take a bullet, take one for the team, get drunk, go on a bender and finish the story. So that's, that's who Chandler was. Let me, let me just conclude this by reading what Chandler actually wrote about who the detective should be. This ties into what Brandon was talking earlier about all the Arthur- Arthurian stuff, the kind of hero that he thought Marla was. This is Chandler in, an, in the essay, Simple Art of Mur- Murder, very famous essay, talking about who he thinks the detective should be. And he does not, he's not specifically talking about Marla. He's just talking about what, who he thinks every detective should be. But it gives you a good template for, or a good way of understanding who... Chandler thought Marlowe was. <clears throat> Quote, but down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in the world and a good enough man for any world. I do not care much about his private life. He is neither a eunuch nor a satyr. I think he might seduce a duchess, and I am quite sure he would not spoil a virgin. If he is a man of honor in one thing, he is that in all things. He is a relatively poor man, or he he would not be a detective at all. He is a common man, or he could not go among common people. He has a sense of character, or he would not know his job. He will take no man's money dishonestly and no man's insolence without a due and dispassionate revenge. He's a lonely man, and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man or be very sorry you ever saw him. He talks as the man of his age talks, that is, with a rude wit, a lively sense of the grotesque, a disgust for sham, and a contempt for pettiness. This, the story is always the man's adventure in search of a hidden truth, and it would be no adventure if it did not happen to a man fit for adventure. He has a range of awareness that startles you, but it belongs to him by right because it belongs to the world he lives in. If there were enough like him, the world would be a very safe place to live in without becoming too dull to be worth living in. So Chandler is nothing if not sentimental about his own hero. The dad that he never had. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's hard not to read that. But I might be sentimental about it too. I don't know. We'll talk about that next episode. Any Day is written and produced by me. Brandon did some nice context over there. Jake. Present in the room. Was present in the room. Read some Sherlock Holmes. It is gravelly uh, Claritin voice. And Brandon, we forgot to mention, has a delightful pair of reading glasses. I do. They're quite stylish. If you go to warhornmedia.com, you can see Brandon in the author tab with those reading glasses. You can. And read a description of him. That you can too. And then you can click on it and see all his books. Yeah. Hey, Jake, if people wanted to support the bookening, how would they do it? Go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening and give at any amount. $1, $4, $10, $25, $50 a month. $100 a month gets you uh, a book of your choice on next year's slate. That's absolutely right. 
$50 a month gets you a copy of each month's book, personalized. $25 a month, end of year t-shirt gets you uh, put a cool fun quote on it from mm-hmm. the show. $10 a month gets you a donor shout out. Donor shout out. $4 a month gets you behind the scenes content fresh every week. Like the video we recorded before today's episode. Yep. We're lying. We didn't record a video before this today's episode, but there'll be one. Don't worry. Maybe yeah. we'll record it afterwards. You don't know what we'll do. You have no clue. You have no clue. Unless you have something to go back in time with. Yep. Yep.